and welcome to episode four of the Patriot Game. I'm Pierce, and with me as always are Lee and Martin. And a joining us tonight is George Baker. George is a founding member of FC United in Manchester and a former board member. George, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, lads. Uh, we'll move on to yourself and FC United in a minute. But firstly, just need to discuss the revelations about the Opus or the Super League. Uh, what do you make of it? And were you surprised about it? No, I wasn't surprised uh, that there was an announcement regarding this because it's been on the cards for a while. Obviously, there's been rumours for the last 20 years or so about a European Super League eventually forming. But like, um, we heard some uh, serious murmurings around like October, November last year that it was going to happen. And um, that, that responded. Uh, there was a response from our fans in the sense that we created a banner that said Euro Prem, question mark, FCUM. Uh, just we, we, we put that on the because um, you, you can read out our initials in a certain way um, so uh, yeah I mean it was no surprise to me at all but what has surprised me is the sheer arrogance of it like the fact that they're just that the founding clubs have just assumed that they could leave um, UEFA and they could just break away entirely and everybody would just accept it because you know they they think they have that much sway and power over the game, so it wasn't so much a surprise to me uh, that they announced the the whole the whole concept of the Super League. But it's just uh, even I was shocked at just the uh, the sheer arrogance of the whole the whole debacle. Yeah, they they really do think though that they they basically control the game and. I think the last year's kind of highlighted that they really don't need supporters. All of the clubs, respectively, I've noticed. I, I checked the figures, and their um, all of their all their revenues have went down. But as clubs, it's basically greed begotten greed. It's, they've they've basically tagged on to the fact that I don't think that they recognise or nor want real supporters, and they're mm-hmm. going to move more to a franchise model. And after today's announcements that certain teams have pulled out, um, I think that there is an element of. Um, tactic at play in the sense that they're then going to be able to use their hand, go back and leverage more control with UEFA, stay within the body, but make, make it more of a closed shop and implement their wishes and desires on the Champions League. Talking specifically about the model that you implement, why do you think that FC United in Manchester is so successful the, as a sort of fan-owned club, a club taking it back to the root, giving autonomy and democracy to the supporters? And what was the actual need for it in its creation? Well, it wasn't just the Glazer takeover. You know, the Glazer takeover was the catalyst of it. You know, like, because it had been quite a long time coming, like a, the either the creation of a club like FC United or just a fan backlash that led to something like FC United being formed. Because, you know, during the 90s, there was more and more sanitization, if you like, of the game, mm-hmm. of, of, of football in general. Uh, to the point where uh, it just became unenjoyable going to watch United anymore, um, in the sense that you you would there'd be overzealous stewarding, there'd be announcements over the tannoy to tell you to sit down or face ejection from the ground, and it was just it it, it was an attack on 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 the traditional fan base, and you know coupled with rising ticket prices, TV schedules uh, taking precedent over everything else. Um, the one thing that we had as United fans was when the club floated on the stock market, at least the fans could 
buy shares uh, in order to, as a collective, in order to try and influence uh, either the ownership of the club or at least the direction. And like it was a case of, you know, it, it, we would rather United, Manchester United didn't float on the stock market because that's, you know, a problem in itself. But if it's if that's going to happen, um, then we might as well form a collective of, of fans buying shares in order to uh, have an influence over the club. And that's how a, a group called Shareholders United got formed in order to try and um, uh, deflate the uh, Murdoch takeover attempts, which happened in the, in the late 90s. Uh, Shareholders United against Murdoch was their original name. And then they just changed it to Shareholders United after the Murdoch takeover was batted off. But those fans didn't stop after the Murdoch takeover attempt was thwarted. They they wanted to keep they wanted to encourage United fans to keep buying shares, and in in the hope that we'd have enough uh, to have some sort of influence over the boardroom. And when the Glazers decided um, to take over the club, that that all went out the window. The United became under entirely private ownership of a family who have no interest in football, who have no interest uh, in, in fan culture or anything to do with that. Uh, they're all, they're in, their sole aim was to make money off the existing fans. And they, they assumed that the blind loyalty of those fans would pay, uh, would, would pay it off despite it being a really hostile debt-led takeover. And FC United's uh, response, the, the fans, well, before SC United was formed, the response of the fans disgusted with this was to was to just not pay into it. But obviously, um, we're all you know, Manchester United fans, and like it, it can only last so long to to stay away from the club you love. So the best the the best idea that we had was not to boycott the club until well well it was to boycott the club until the Glazers go, but to provide an alternative in the meantime which was FC United of Manchester. And that in itself was a fan-owned um, club that we that was created out, out of nothing. And the whole point was to keep it fan-owned, to keep, to keep it within the control of the fans in order to, um, in order to make it, you know, glazer-proof, if you like. You know, there's no one, no one could take over the club. And it was entirely within our control. And we, it was a chance for us to cre to create an image of what we want Manchester United to be, really. George, how difficult was it um, to come away from, obviously, being immersed with Manchester United and going in to form um, FC United and Manchester? And was there a backlash from the club itself and, and other fans? It was very difficult because, you know, we... I mean... I, I was lucky in the sense that I was only I was like about I was about 19 years old when um, the Glazers took over United, but I was already, and I never had a season ticket personally um, because just couldn't afford it as a, a 19 year old, just couldn't afford to have one, and that was part of the problem. You know, even exist there were plenty of existing season ticket holders who um, gave up, uh, who gave that up in order to follow FC United, but the fact that I could never. I could never afford one. And even when I did go to games, which was relatively frequently, I didn't find myself enjoying it very much. Um, it was, it, it was very difficult still to just say, well, I, I'm never going back again. Um, at least until the Glazers leave. Um, and it was for, for everybody else. 
there was a backlash, absolutely. You know, there were certain, there were a lot of people who the vast majority of Man United fans, uh, the ones I talked to, if 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 they know about FC United, they're like, oh yeah, I understand why, but it's not something it's not something I could do. But the there is there was quite a bit of a backlash uh, from people who decided we were treacherous or or Judas's or whatever, and it's it. It didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that because it's it's unite it's what United became that abandoned the fans, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, it 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 completely decided that the, the business model of Manchester United, even before the Glazers, was we want to maximise revenue. We want to take advantage of the new fans that um, they've got through that, that we've got through uh, success on the pitch. And so they would rather have the day tripper who turns up, spends loads of money in the mega store, goes back to wherever um, they've come from for that day, uh, rather Ireland than normally. just a local fan who turns up, has a few beers, and goes out, goes home. You know, so they'd rather take advantage of that market, and that is to the detriment of the, the local fans who who have, you know essentially the ancestors of the people who formed the club. Um, so. It wasn't, it was, like I say, it was very difficult to leave, but it was also well, how good FC United end up, ended up being and still is, is it was a great consolation because we found ourselves standing with like-minded United fans, uh, singing our hearts out, being able to, uh, being able to have a beer, being able to afford uh, the day out and, you know, not having overzealous stewards telling us what to do, very little police presence. Um, certainly at home games anyway and it, yeah, it was just terrific so that certainly uh, that certainly quelled the uh, disappointment in the immediate aftermath of the Glazer takeover So you were saying about like how hard it was to leave and not go back after the initial flurry of support did many people fall off and go back to United? Yeah, a few I mean our our, official, our average attendance for the first season was just over 3,000, which is insane if you consider we were playing at the 10th level of English football, where most, yeah, it, the uh, the average attendance for the Northwest Counties League, where we started, was in the in, in the low three figures. We're talking 100, 100, 100, 200, maybe some clubs were even getting less than 100 as their average. And then we turn up with you know, a lot of teams had to move their uh, home game against us to a local uh, larger stadium. Like we played at Boundary Park, Oldham's ground three times. That was three away games. We played Oldham's, Oldham Athletics, Boundary Park. Uh, we played, uh, we, we took 4,000 away to Blackpool Mechanics, Blackpool Mechanics FC, who are now AFC Blackpool. And it was the largest away following that went to Blackpool for 20 years. Uh, um, and it wasn't even for Blackpool FC. It was for, uh, a secondary team, and then they had to move it to Blackpool FC's ground, Bluefield Road. Um, so in the first season, there was a hell, of, there was loads of interest, and we were getting lots of people who said, who you know, word of mouth, and everything. this was before social media really took off as well. So it was mostly word of mouth, like you know, it's 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 a great atmosphere. Come along, see if you enjoy it. So it was a lot. The first season was a case study, if you like, for a lot of Reds to see if they actually enjoyed it. And two years later, our attend our attendances, our average attendance was about just over two thousand. So we lost about a third of the support that we had initially. 
Um, but you, you can put that down to curiosity, as I said, from like United fans just seeing if it was for them or not. Um, but that's fine, you know, because you were asking me about a backlash earlier. There were a lot of there were quite a few Reds who were like really dead against it, but it just showed that the majority of United fans understood why FC United existed and wanted to try it for themselves. They decided it wasn't for them, so you know, obviously they're going to try it in the first couple of seasons and it fell away. However, it kind of leveled out around 2000 for um, between 1500 and 2000 for the rest of the uh, for the next 10 years, and then as it as it progressed. Um, when we were building our own ground, when we we moved, one of the factors was the fact that our home ground was at Bury FC, which is a good eight miles, not eight to nine miles north of Manchester City Centre. So the geographical aspects might have had a bit of an effect on you know supporting the club. Um, but once we um, were building our own ground in uh, Moston, where it is now Broadus Park. Uh, which is just a couple two and a half three miles northeast of Manchester City Centre um, a lot more we, we started to gain a bit of a, a a new following a bit more of a local following a few people who had come in the early years started coming back so um, initially yeah there was a lot of interest it fell away a bit but then it it kind of regained uh, it's it, it kind of re, we kind of regained interest and in the last few days there's been a hell of a lot of interest as well because a lot of people have remembered this stance we took 16 years ago and um, have realised that perhaps we were onto something. Who knows what it's going to be like next season? Then the announcement's coming out. Do you think that will spur people on to be more organised, get get maybe closer aligned, group up as sort of like-minded supporters and think, right, if we're going to safeguard and prevent something like this happening to our club, because I think there'll be a catalyst now. I think going forward, people will start to recognise if the Super League doesn't work, there's loads of clubs that operate in a European model. They will want to follow suit because they'll all want a slice of the pie. And the greed will gradually succumb and it will overtake a lot of clubs. And it, once, it's, once it's embedded in the clubs, it's done, it's too late. So I think the key is maybe to, to organise now and see where you can take the club and try and maybe propel it to a point of fan ownership or certainly some degree of closer democracy. I think it's really important that a lot of fans of, of all clubs, uh, regardless of where they are in their respective mm-hmm. pyramids, see what's happened in the last few days and use this as a, as a tool to mobilise and at least get some sort of fan representation on their respective board of directors. Because uh, you, it, it might be... It might be quite a fight to become entirely fan on, for, certainly for a club like Celtic, uh, certainly for a club as big as them. But it's not out of reach, and it's not um, it, it's not a pipe dream to think that you could get some fan representation on the board. I say, mm-hmm. if um, as I was touched on earlier, like um, one of the the main goal of United of United fans before the Glazer takeover was to get was to mobilise to buy enough shares to get some sort of represent as a collective of fans to get a representation on the board. And they were close to getting a majority from, from what I've been told before McNair and McManus essentially sold the, the two main shareholders of Manchester United at the time sold out to the Glazers. So it's, it's really not unrealistic to think that you could get a, a certain amount of fan representation on the board of directors. And yeah, as we've just seen in the last few days, uh, a lot of these 
club owners, a lot of these directors, they don't, they, they underestimate the power of, 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 of football fans. You know, I, this, this has been a little bit different in the sense that everybody's been united against this whole European Super League idea. But at the same time, you know, nobody expected when, when the Glazers took over Manchester United, nobody expected F, uh, like an FC United to form. And the amount of atten- media attention we got, the amount of fans who... It was never enough to threaten uh, Manchester United in the sense that, you know, that was the, that was the, uh, the, old, the old argument. When, if, if you leave Old Trafford, there's always going to be somebody else to take up your seat. But it still... It, it really rattled, the, r- rattled them, the amount of uh, media attention we got in the local press, in even in Sky Sports News, where even we even covered the fact when we got promoted, that kind of thing, and it really did rattle them because it surprised a lot of people that fans didn't just sit sit back and go, oh well, that's it, it's happened now, let's just get on with it. It really surprised them that that happened, and it's happening on a much bigger scale now, because a lot of fans, a lot of pundits, a lot of um, you know, players—they've all come out and said we won't, we won't take part in this European Super League, and I think it's really surprised them. But for me, it's down—it—it it, it was down to the fan backlash more than anything. You saw the protests yesterday at Ellen Road, um, Chelsea being Chelsea fans stopping uh, the team getting to the to the ground today, just you know, just before the game tonight. It's a Peter lot of that. Yeah, it's just um, it, it, a lot of that is fan mo- mobilization, and fa- that momentum that we've all built up in the last few days. That really, I really hope that gets channeled into something mm-hmm. more, into something more um, sustainable for the future. Because there's going to be another grift coming along in the next year oh, right. or two from from these people. You know, they don't they they're going to like perhaps you know we might touch on it later on. Perhaps this whole European Super League idea was, you know, an attempt by the bigger clubs to get a bigger slice of the pie from UEFA with regards to the Champions League and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that also should be opposed to a degree because whilst it might keep them happy for now, those clubs, if concessions are made towards them, they're going to want, they're just, the, the greed is going to continue and continue unless there's more fan representation on these boards of directors. Like you see the likes of uh, Liverpool fans and then Chelsea fans tonight. There's a certain hypocrisy though. You know, these people have reveled in the glory of the Premier League for the last 20 years and slagging other leagues for being so-called farmers leagues. I just don't understand. What, what is their point now? I, I don't get what, what they're so outraged about. And Sky Sports seem to just be annoyed because they weren't yeah. in on the party. They, that's the only their issue here. That's it's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sky Sports, like, and BT and ev- and everybody, like, it's interesting how. I mean, I was talking to my flatmate about this recently. Like, um, they're only outraged because their own interests are at threat. With Ooh. regards to the European Super League, I imagine they've already probably provisionally agreed a deal with that either they're either they're going to control their own TV rights or they've sold them to a, one of the tech giants. You know, so Sky are going to lose out. BT are going to lose out, and because Sky have such an influence over um, over the media, particularly when it comes to sport, they have uh, a power to create a narrative whereby 
we're all, we're all against this. But if if the if the European Super League had contacted Sky and said this is what we're going to do, do you think they'd be as do you think they'd be allowing Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher to no. slag them off like, be- and give them such a platform? They'd they'd have been <laughs> telling us, you know, the millions watching at home that this is actually a good thing. Yeah, this right. is a good thing. It's the same organisation. Because they've been laid out, they're telling us it's a bad thing. And that's the only reason. And people need to realise this. And it it really, really grates me to see Gary Neville, a man who couldn't have been quieter when the Glazers took over Manchester United in 2005. And indeed, criticised those who spoke out. Like he, I remember like United had to play a Champions League qualifier that season uh, against a team called De Brecken in um, Hungary. And... Um, on the plane out there, by all accounts, he was slagging off those who broke away to uh, to create FC United. Uh, he, I've, we've since, you know, because of his involvement with Salford City, we've since um, uh, become, he's since softened his stance somewhat. But, um, you know, it's been 16 years now, and it's only now that he's saying the Glazers are scavengers and they should be booted out. Imposters it is. Imposters, yeah. Like it's just it's it's convenient for him to show contrition now and say, Oh, perhaps I was wrong. Well, it's clearly obvious you think you were wrong because you're using the platform that you've had for the last, you know, as a sky pundit for the last six or seven years, and finally now you're speaking out when you've been warned about this constantly. And he as recently as October twenty nineteen, he was defending the Glazers. You know, there's there's new there's there's literally quotes from him and news stories with the headline Gary Neville defends the Glazer ownership and all this. So it's really great to see him as some sort of spokesperson against this. I'm glad that he's saying it, but it's and particularly given his investment in Salford City, a, a club who had been going who been going since the 19th century. As soon as the Nevilles and the rest of the class of '92 got involved. They changed the colours of the, the of the team from orange to red. They, um, they 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 changed the badge. They changed everything. You know, it was no longer a a non-league club for its community. It was a money-making vehicle for them, and it was a vanity project for them. So, um, and you know, Salford City is you know is it's a club with a lot of rich history, and you know, I'm sure they're doing plenty of good things within you know developing youth football and uh, and the women's game and things like that in the local area. But it's an, it's another example of millionaires taking over a football club and zooming them up the leagues. It doesn't matter if they were former f- uh, footballers in the past. 100%. It's also worth noting that Gary Naval uh, works for the organisation that was charging £15 for Sky Sports pay-per-view during the middle of a global pandemic. Yeah, exactly. Also, as well, with with it was only was it last year, or the year before that Rio Ferdinand was licensed at Newcastle fans because they were outraised at what way their club was being run. Oh yeah, didn't you say something ridiculous about oh they should just buy it themselves if they're that angry about it, as if it's that easy to just raise three hundred million pounds. That's just <laughs> how out of touch these footballers are. You know, Rio Ferdinand. This is yeah. I'll tell you something about Rio Ferdinand. That's a man who, um, despite getting banned for eight months for failing to show up for a drugs test less than a year later holds Manchester United the club that stood by him through all that to ransom just because he wants a few extra grand a week to go to Chelsea that's what he was instructing his agent to do wasn't it try and you know talk to Peter Kenyon at Chelsea and see what they're willing to offer me and see what Manchester United are coming back to me 
uh, with. So like, and then he's ranting on um, on BT or wherever about uh, Paul Pogba and his agent, like uh, supposedly holding United to ransom. And how disgraceful it is! And it's just, it's that people people have very short memories when it comes to this, and it, it's very. It's very jarring to see these people because Rio Ferdinand himself has spoken out against this Super League. Gary Neville has. Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson has apparently. It's the same Sir Alex Ferguson who spoke out against the potential of a Glazer takeover, even the potential of a Premier League he spoke out against. Like the quotes that he, uh, somebody pointed out on Twitter the other day about the quotes that Alex Ferguson used in 1992 against a potential Premier League are almost exactly mirrored to what he could have said uh, with regard to uh, a European Super League and even a, and indeed a Glazer takeover 16 years ago. So it's it, it's so easy though when you look at say England, right? And there is I, I just think there's such an element of revisionism. And I this is absolutely nothing on you at all because we're absolutely delighted for you to be on as a guest and your points are so valid. But I think there's a general consensus now and Sky's driven this narrative best league in the world, best clubs in the world. They've really forced this narrative and people have absorbed it completely. They've absolutely and utterly taken it to the core and understood or certainly perceived it to understand what the what the league is, what it represents. And there's a sort of there's a there's just such an egotistical sort of slant to this to the league and sky sports in the way that they drive the narrative. But when you look prior to the what I would call the death of English football, which was in nineteen ninety two when Sky created the, the premiership, before that there was just such a more even playing field. Like just if you specifically look at Scotland, as we are Celtic fans. Celtic were the first non-Latin team to win the European Cup, beating Inter Milan in the final. You won the season after. We also got to the final in 1970 against Feyenoord. If you look at UEFA Cups, you had a situation where Dundee United got one. Celtic in 2003, Rangers in 2008. Rangers also played in three um, Cup Winners' Cup finals, as well as Aberdeen beating Real Madrid, a current team that's just went yeah. into the Super League. So... When, yeah, before he went to uh, Man United. So when you look, when when there was a when there was a degree of financial parity in the game, Scottish football was booming. The crowds were massive, even per head per yeah. population. Scotland is the highest attended country in Europe for viewing figures at matches. The Scottish game, fifty six percent of the revenue that is generated from every club in Scotland is generated by the support. So the biggest income stream that we have is people coming through the turnstiles. And the difference with England is it's generally for Sky. So when you see the absolute greed and the desire for the... Well, we were talking about the parachute payments before we came on there. £90 million. Pound, £90 million pound for Sky if you go down the league. When you're winning it, the money per game... like In Scotland, if you win the league, even though... like Here's one for you, actually. I'll digress for one second. Celtic played against Rangers, or whatever you want to call them, in a, a game two years ago. And the viewing figures were... were and I, I don't know the exact number, so I'm not going to quote it to be wrong, but I know it was considerably higher than as a global audience than that of the game between Man United and Man City. And yet, for the match, for the match, Celtic and Rangers get a pittance. To win their league, we get paid £1.8 million and then £1 million in advertisement fees, £2.8 million. You've got teams down in England that have lit literally a slice of a billion pound cake. But then you've got teams like Bolton going close to the wall, Burry, who went kaput. Yet Sky, the hypocrisy of Sky in this current situation is that it wasn't long ago when they had a clock counting yep. down to these clubs 
the, and, and pending death. They had cameramen yep. at the stadiums saying, yeah. are you going to go bust? Talking to supporters who were crying because they represent the community. It represents their mum, their dad, what the club stands for. Going along to the games as a kid, the community engagement, different social groups and aspects around their local area, or what the club maybe means in a more broader sense, like, for example, Celtic. Celtic to so many is Ireland because of the diaspora. Yeah. And here alone you have myself, you have Pearson Dublin and Lee in Belfast. Football clubs are about the people that support them, not about the people that own them. And that the sooner we get back to a situation where the fans are the custodians and maybe implement a model like what we have in Germany, the better. That 50 plus one scheme is just banging. And I think you really started yeah. to see proof was in the pudding when Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund said no thanks to that. Um, particularly, particularly Bayern Munich, considering the investment yeah. they've had from the Middle East as well. Definitely, and that that was very important, you know. And it, PSG as well uh, surprised a lot of people, considering their Middle Eastern involvement and how you'd mm-hmm. think, by just you, you just assume that those owners would also want uh, a slice of this um, ESL cake. So it's very important that they anticipate. But that just shows how in touch, particularly in Bayern Munich and Borussia Dortmund's case, it just shows how in touch. Uh, German clubs are with their fans, mm-hmm. uh, with that because of and it's largely because of that fifty plus one model that you just mentioned. If the fans are in control, they have the overall influence, and yeah. they they will have made it very clear based on the murmurings of this Super League that was happening, like the fact that it was going to happen soon when it came out uh, in the in the news in late twenty twenty. I reckon that because the German fans particularly are so well mobilized when it comes to this sort of thing. They will have let their um, respective owners know, like the ones, like the ones with the big money who are in charge, that that's not what they want. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, um, it's it's really impressive. You see, you see so many examples of German fans uh, saying, like, just saying no to uh, various, like the fact that they're not going to, there's not going to be any Monday night games next season in the Bundesliga or the Bundesliga team. Because fans were boycotting Monday night yeah. matches. Yeah, before before COVID, they were boycotting Monday night matches and just leaving, like, I can't remember which club it was, but one of them just left a huge banner oh, in the stand where they would have been with Frankfurt, yeah. Frankfurt, yeah. yeah. Montag crossed out, like, and, and that was it. So, so you know, that's the influence fans can have. Yeah. And this is what was frustrating with regards to uh, the, the Glazer takeover at United. We were saying, don't go. Don't go to the games. Boycott. If you want, if everybody was saying they don't want the Glazers taking over, whether that be David Gill, Alex Ferguson, or your average United fan in the street, nobody wanted the Glazers to take over because they, their, their business plan involved leveraging debt onto United. Turned us from one of the biggest clubs, one of the biggest clubs in the world, overnight into the most debt-laden club. So nobody wanted this takeover, and all that needed to happen, and it's a, it's a big ask. But if United fans had just it were mobilised in the same way as they are on the continent or in South America, and like in many other in many other countries in the world, we could have put that to bed immediately. As could the players at United. As could Alex Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, they if Sir Alex Ferguson has said I'm resigning if the Glazers take over, uh, that would have had a huge impact. And if the players had said we won't play like like they're all like they're all doing now, a lot of them saying they won't play in the ESL or they won't coach the team in the ESL. If they'd have just said that with United, then that wouldn't have happened. And that domino effect, whereby Joel Glazer, who's been in chat, who's been the the chief member of the Glazer family in charge of United since then, 
uh, and ends up being the vice chair of the ESL group. That's what it's led to. And we could have put that we could have put that to bed if we were mobilised in any sort of way. And it would have been done. It, it, it would have just taken a few home games uh, of no United fans in the stadium. But sadly, that's not realistic. We're all just too pass. Like a lot of fans in this country, particularly, uh, very depressingly, are just too passive. One big example. What was it they were going to call them? Hull Tigers or something like that? That's actually a rare example of fans coming together they and stood opposing up. Yeah. something like that. Because they didn't have a referendum amongst their fans to say, do you want to adopt the name Hull Tigers? Mm-hmm. And they said no. And there was plenty of protests and um, about that. And, you know, so fair play to them on that. But that was that was an overt attack on their... on, on on their uh, culture as a club. Yeah, Tigers is their nickname, it's not their name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a little bit different. But yeah, you're absolutely right in the sense that, you know, Celtic are un- seem to be, as certainly in the case of a larger club, a very unique in British football, if you like, because there are very, I can't think of any ultra group, or I mean, there aren't really any ultra groups, are there, in, for a British, for an English team? You know, there aren't really. Maybe the, Crystal the most- Palace, but. Compared, like compared to Celtic, it's very small, but yeah, you've exactly. got a few in England, but like Middlesbrough's got Red Fraction, Crystal Palace has got the Eagles, and there's a few it's other certainly not groups, as influential as but the they don't have a say. They don't have a say within the larger support. They don't no. really... No, and even like um, when it comes to place, if, if say those clubs play, say Palace or Borough played uh, RB Leipzig or uh, RB Red Bull Salzburg, for example... Mm-hmm. You know, would there be um, uh, an overtly anti-statement uh, in in the stands? I doubt there would be. And it's funny you should touch on Red Bull because uh, FC again, a lot of people seem to look to us at FC United whenever this kind of thing happens because we're one of the rare examples of English football fans saying "fuck this" essentially mm-hmm. um, and just going our own way and uh, speaking out against the, the, the constant corporatization of football. And um, one of the, one of the teams we've played friend, one of the few teams uh, who have actually come to uh, Manchester and we've gone over to theirs is Estria Salzburg. And I'm not sure if you know about them. They're the team that yeah. Red well, yeah, Red Bull Salzburg um, used to be oh, called like Red Bull took over SV Austria Salzburg renamed them Red Bull changed their colours um, and a lot of the traditional sport obviously were outraged by that they used to play in violet and white and now they're playing in white and red and so they essentially formed their own club and have worked their way up to up the Austrian football pyramid I think they're in the thir- third tier now and we played, we played a friendly against them at our place, and we played over there. And it's similar to the grammar. We had a, we had a, um, we had a banner that said "Shire Red Bull" at the front um, that our fans made uh, as, as to solidarity with them. So it's, it's a shame that it, and we, because we play at the seventh tier of English football, and we're only, we're averaging between fifteen hundred and two thousand at the moment. And you know, the fan culture in, in England certainly doesn't seem to be one that mirrors the rest of Europe when it comes to protesting the mm. overt commercialization of the game. And that's why so many fans have either just gone over to their local non-league club uh, because they're sick of um, the corporate experience at the clubs that they've grown, that they've spent their lives supporting 
but that's also why a fan like with FC United, one of the main one of one of the criticisms that the main criticism that we had was, well, why didn't you just why did you have to form your own club? Why did you have, why couldn't you just go and support an existing one? That's because we had no affiliation to those little clubs. We wanted we've been Manchester United fans all our lives, and we wanted to continue to support Manchester United. But if we couldn't physically do that, we wanted to create a club in a vision of what we wanted Manchester United to be. We wanted to keep together as fans because breaking off into little fragments and increasing the attendances of lower league clubs by 10 or 20, what impact is that going to have on the wider game? Zero. Mm-hmm. So if we, if we are a visible, um, if we are a visible entity of pissed off football fans, whilst uh, that, you know, visibly still care about Manchester United, that's going to have a far bigger impact. And if people say, oh, well, you're taking money away from, you know, mon- that money could go towards these existing clubs. When we go to their ground, when we take an away following to their grounds, they get, get a far bigger cash injection than they would if 10 or 20 just went along now and again. So it all works out. And the attendances of local Greater Manchester non-league clubs that already existed, uh, if anything, like they certainly didn't go down when FC formed. If anything, they were uh, they were going up because we were increasing awareness of teams at that level because we were showing up in uh, in huge droves to these these little clubs. Bring it back then to yourselves and FC United. What was the process like of setting up the club and registering to play with the FA and so on? Um, it was a lot of hard work. I wasn't involved in the initial steering committee. I was just a founder member and somebody who invest uh, who invested my money into it. Um, but the it, if um, you look into what the steering committee of FC and I did originally, it was a hell of a lot of work, and it was all not only was it voluntary, but it was they never knew whether or not it, it was going to come to anything because yeah, they had to get together a business plan to present to um, the FA, they had to get something together. To pre- Once the FA approved, they initially wanted to just call, we initially just wanted to be called FC United. Uh, and that's it. And then the FA came back and said, no, that's too generic. It needs to be geographical in some way. So we put it to a fans vote of people who'd invested in the club. Like, uh, And there was four choices as to what you want to, uh, the one you want the club to be called. And FC United of Manchester is the one that won. So once that was all sorted, they then had to put in an application to um, a league in order to take us on. And because we were just created out of thin air uh, in late May um, and we wanted to play the following season, which started in August, there was a hell of a lot of work that needed to be done in order to convince the Northwest Counties League to accept us as a club. And um, the members of the steering committee who did that deserve a hell of a lot of credit because they put in hours and hours and hours of voluntary work in order to get that done. And then, um, you know, in, in between all of that, in presenting this business plan to the league, they had to get a team together, you know, of players. They had to find a ground that would be able to, um, because, you know, the amount of publicity and uh, potential crowds that we could get, we needed to find a ground uh, close enough to Manchester that would be able to uh, host the amount of people who were initially intent on coming along. So there was all sorts of um, it was, there was all sorts of things that needed to be done. 
And eventually, like we initially had an agreement with a team called Drolston FC, which is just in, in the Tameside area of Manchester, in East Manchester. And the council, Tameside Council, uh, pulled the plug on it because they thought we'd get too many people because it was only a three and a half thousand capacity ground, uh, the Butcher's Arms in Drolston. So we then have the steering committee have that setback to deal with. So they then had, eventually, they uh, came to a deal with Berry FC. And, you know, even though that was further out of Manchester, it's still within Greater Manchester as a county. So that was enough to sway the league, even the Northwest Counties League, to let us in. And then, of course, you know, you've got to set up the friendlies to test whether or not people will turn up. Um, on top of hiring the manager to uh, look after the players. And it was it was a hell of a lot of work. I've gone, uh, still to this day, I'm in awe of the people who set up the FC United within such a short space of time and for it to become as successful as it did. Bond ownership is very intriguing. Um, I know that Motherwell in Scotland, um, they've, they've, they've brought it on board. Um, what's the, what is, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and really who have heard um, fan ownership be amazing before, but what does it like, what does it entail and what's, what's the main pros of it? Well, the main pros is, it, is that you're in control of, essentially you're in control of how far you want the club to go. Um, it's not a utopia, like the initial utopia that we thought it would be in 2005, because obviously when you've got 2000 Two thousand, two and a half thousand people, all with an equal say. There's a lot to be said, isn't there? So it's about finding that consensus within all those people. I mean, obviously there are fans who are more. There are a lot of FC and I fans who don't particularly take part in the political process of the club, of the of the you know voting on resolutions and board members and things like that. But the ones that do, you know, there's obviously going to be disagreements when there's hundreds of people. Uh, wanting uh, certain things to happen. So, I mean, the main desire that we wanted was just just for a club to be safe from s- some random million, uh, some random person with money thinking that they can make a quick buck off a football club. We wanted to be in control of it, whether it be, um, you know, whether whether we wanted to be in control of how far we go up the leagues, whether how far we want to, uh, to progress. Like we just wanted to make sure that we could provide an affordable football experience for the local community of Manchester, uh, for, for wherever we happened to be uh, at the time. Cause you know, it was, it took, it was a long process finding a home ground. But once we did, even when we were temporarily in Berry, we were doing community initiatives um it for the local area so when we finally got when the council agreed that we could build our own stadium uh in in the moston area we immediately like the community like buttering up the community and and working within it was a huge priority and so it was it's been a long process and uh but one thing that we've we've certainly done um is because we're because we're a fan-owned collective, and because because people know that that's because the people who are, who support FC United know that that's what we're about. It's any community. We've had so many community initiatives that we do, such as we do something called Big Coat Day every year, where we get fans to donate um, clothing uh, to give to the to the homeless of Manchester. 
Uh, we have People United Day where um, we get uh, local immigrant communities, local refugee communities uh, involved, and uh, not just not just those communities, but like uh, primary schools are invited, like invited down as well. Um, that we have during the pandemic, we even set up a food hub at the ground, which is continuing to this day and has had all sorts of publicity because it's been run fantastically well. So I think the collective the collectivization of uh, the ownership of FC United has actually made people aware to other issues within their own communities mm-hmm. and that has in turn resulted in not just us thinking oh this is a great way to run a football club this is a great way to actually help a community by all just getting together and uh, uh, and and helping out as one two things that you were just talking about there firstly what one thing that I picked up on and you were talking about was the different initiatives that you run one Fair play to you. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, there's similar sort of initiatives within Celtic, some within the support, some within the foundation that's affiliated to the club. The sad thing for me is the fact that they're still relevant or needed in this, this day and age. Um, I think with regards to, there's parallels definitely between the greed that you're seeing now within the modern game and that of wider society and governments and a more sort of overt capitalist sort of narrative and how it dictates and controls society. So there's actually a need for things like food banks which I think is astonishing. Mm. But when you were talking overtly there about different things that you do, especially with refugees and all that sort of stuff, which is outstanding, is there a political dimension to the club? Would the club, would, would the fans regard themselves as, for example, left-wing, or have they adopted a political ideology, or, or is it more just a, a football narrative helping in the community? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there's a unified political ideology. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are plenty of FC fans like myself and like plenty of people I know who are overtly left-wing and who... Um, and who see the club as a vehicle to um, to not not to advance our personal politics, but in order to uh, represent various social um, various social attitudes, which can benefit the local community, as I touched on. Uh, but the thing is, with FC United being the s- set up the way it is, like a fan owned democracy, a, a fan owned democracy, if you like, it was always going to attract. More than any more than any other demographic, left leaning mm-hmm. Manchester United fans. So that's always been um, that's always been prevalent at FC United. Even if we don't overtly say we are a left wing club, we're not we're not taking a particular political stance because there are plenty of people at FC United who aren't left who are who don't define themselves uh, as as left wing particularly. And um, you know, there's plenty like, and it's a diverse range of fans. Uh, who not just not not just demographically but politically as well and that's fine you know we don't I don't want even you know personally I'm quite a left-wing guy but I don't want to be a club that excludes people uh, for having a different political viewpoint obviously we draw the line at fascists and things like that and they have they have tried to infiltrate FC United in the past you know um, a group of BNP did try and push their agenda for once there was a couple there was a couple there was a couple of examples when we were at gig lane of uh of people like because because the far right see football crowds as a recruiting ground yeah uh they made an attempt there was a couple of attempts at uh passing out uh leaflets and literature uh which were swiftly uh (laughs) shall we say put down Good. Uh, we're talking a long. This was a long time ago. Now we're talking to, when the BNP were in any way relevant back in the late two thousands. 
Um, but yeah, there's there's never there's there's never been any of that uh, tolerated at FC United. But we're you know we're politically we're a diverse range of people, but as a club, because we're socially conscious, because we're we're fan owned, because we want to um, project that image of this being a club for the fans for the people, it's it's inevitably going to um, attract. Uh, left-leaning, uh, le- left-leaning supporters, but then plenty of right-leaning people believe in social cohesion uh, and that kind of thing. They might not vote that way when it comes to the ballot box, but they're not going to oppose um, a, a food hut being set up. They're not going to oppose um, charitable initiatives towards the homeless, towards refugees, because they do, in their hearts, they know that's that's a good thing to be doing. Um but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's naturally going to attract uh, a left-leaning sport based on its organisation, I would say. But it's not an official stance of the club. You were touching on before there, sorry, about uh, it's the members' decision how far the club will go. What is the long-term ambition of the club? Is it to get back into the Football League and uh, chase the riches of the Premier League? It's a question that's asked a lot, actually, that. And we don't really, I wouldn't say it is. I would say that the ambition of the club is to provide an affordable um, alternative to not just Manchester United, but um, football and football clubs in general. And we obviously want the team to do as well as they can on the pitch and for us to go up the leagues as far as we can, because it's natural to just want your football club to do well. But we just want to see how far we can go whilst not compromising what we hold dear to ourselves, which is the principles of what the club was founded on, to be to be run by its supporters, to be active in its local community. Um, so those things should always take precedence over, say, a playing budget, for example. You know, the money should always be prioritised towards... Like, for example, we've got a lot of debt to pay back based on how much it costs to build Broaders Park. We were the first club formed as a fan-owned club to build our own ground in the probably in the world let alone britain um so you know a a fan-owned club to build a a club that started from scratch to be fan-owned and to build its own ground it's almost unheard of but it took um a lot of you know we had a community shares initiative we had loan stock initiatives we had a few loans from we had grants uh from sport england and the football foundation we had loans from manchester city council and the loans and the community shares and the loan stock all has to be paid back so we do have to have an intelligent business plan whilst also trying to maintain uh the principles of um of 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 making sure we don't strain to over commercialization so you know there's been we we've ended up having to raise emission prices but that's always gone to the fans first you know, if, if we want to if we want to raise admission prices, uh, like like for example, when I was on the board of directors myself, uh, that became a necessity. We needed to raise admission prices in order to help pay towards the ground debt. But we put that resolution to fans first, and they voted on it. And they get the fans get two op, uh, opportunities to vote on resolutions every single year, and uh, we had to put it to the fans. Uh, you know whether or not we should raise admission prices and season ticket prices, and by and large, there's an overwhelming majority of fans who agree to it because they know that their money's going in 
going all it's all going back into the club it's all going back into um the initiatives of what the club wants to do so the ambition of the club is to just maintain that and see how far we can go whilst maintaining it and to do well in the cup competitions mainly as well martin martin touched on it about the work you just do i think again i i i the work you do is absolutely fantastic just within the community and everything that they're doing. Um, but is it true that Ari Cantona said that you're going to win the Champions League within 50 years? I know you're touching on your success of you going up the leagues and stuff. But well, Cantona- what he said was they have a great idea and I hope that they can build up and win the Champions League within 50 years. That's what he said. Well, there you go. Um, I get it. And it's brilliant. Like, it was it's terrific to hear because he's a hero to, to, to us all, not just as a player, but as a man, Eric Cantona. Yeah. And um, yeah, because yeah, he was in um, Looking for Eric, uh, which was a film by Ken Loach. And um, uh, they, Ken Loach particularly did a lot of research into FC United because as a football fan himself, he, I think he's a Bath City fan and they were fan owned at the time. I'm not sure if they still are. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, kind, that example of football fans taking matters into their own hands really appealed to him. And that's how, that's, that was the basis for him doing this film and to get Eric Cantona involved in that was was phenomenal and you know a man like Eric who speaks who, who's not afraid to speak out against um, those in authority and to speak out in favour of socialism and aspects like that he, he was always going to be sympathetic towards FC United I would imagine but it was great to hear it from him and um, we know that he yesterday's he's he he was very uh, articulate in his opposition to the European Super League, and we shared that on SC United's social media. I noticed Manchester United didn't. You know, they didn't. They didn't share what Eric Cantona had to say, uh, but FC United did. So well, that he, just tells you about. Fantastic. He was some player, but uh, he was also, thankfully, very much opposed to fascism. I remember he was that mm. a Crystal Palace fan. He steamed into what a man. But yes, uh, absolutely. See, taking it back a wee second, what you were talking about, I was just thinking the other night when you were talking about basically creating a model and a template and you were talking about Loach and all that sort of stuff, being a Bassey fan. Have any football clubs got in contact with you and basically, if not said overtly that they want to take it in a direction of what you've done, have they showed solidarity and says that it's a possible project that they could take on in the future? Any, any other fan groups or things like that or clubs? Quite a few uh, clubs that have collapsed and reformed, such as Chester, Mm-hmm. And uh, Barry AFC uh, have been in touch with FC United to ask, you know, what is is there is there any way you can help us in doing this? And, and that's if somebody from FC hasn't contacted them first, because we're always on hand to help other clubs when it comes to either taking over their existing club as um, as a supporter ownership or uh, particularly Phoenix clubs who who found themselves shafted by greedy owners and having and you know, not ceasing to exist. And then those fans going forward and saying, we need to re- we, we need to start the club up again. Obviously, the first thing, most of them in in those cases where a club has collapsed and they want to reform, in, in the majority of cases, those fans want to be in control of the future uh, club that they create. And that was certainly the case with Chester FC. It's certainly the case with Bury AFC. Mm. So, yeah, we're always on hand to give advice and help out uh, with those clubs. That's something that um, FC United have done with regardless of who's been in charge. You know, we've had, we've had various board members, various general managers over the years 
and uh, they've always been, uh, regardless of the uh, regardless of whatever criticisms there may be of those um, people who've been in charge of SC United over the years, they've always been on hand to help out other football fans with regards to uh, whether uh, you know, as with regards to how much better an option fan ownership is. I mean, as I said earlier, it's not the utopia that some people think it is, because there's always going to be a lot of there's always going to be conflict here and there, but it really is a much more preferable model. And uh, the more clubs that have fan representation, no matter how low down the pyramid they are mm. or how high up, it's only going to be beneficial. And yeah, we're always on hand to help others. Good man. Would you have had much of a relationship with AFC Wimbledon? Obviously, we're famous in the first club. It was, the club was stolen from them by owners. Yeah, well, our second ever game uh, back in 2005 was against AFC Wimbledon. In fact, uh, they're um, uh, one of one of the leading figures of AFC Wimbledon. Chris Stewart uh, actually spoke. Um, not even a, this wasn't even an FC United thing. This was at a Manchester United uh, supporters meeting shortly after the Glazer takeover to discuss what to do next. He actually came up from Wimbledon to talk to Manchester United fans at the Apollo in Manchester, um, just discuss just to say how great it was how good it's been um, since they formed AFC Wimbledon, which I think was three years. I think it was 2002 when AFC Wimbledon was formed. And, you know, it, they, they were three years old at the time. And I remember as the United, even though I was, I was a Man United fan, I remember keeping up with AFC Wimbledon's results because I remember just thinking, you know, what a great story it is that fans uh, rebelled against their club being stolen from them and created their own club and were flying up the leagues. So, uh, and they, they, as I was saying earlier, like with FC United offering help to other clubs, we, AFC Wimbledon were the first club that the FC United Steering Committee went to, to ask for uh, guidance and help on how to set up a club. So they've always, they've always been a, uh, a big part uh, of our history. And we've played several friendlies against them over the years. It's been a while since we played one. Uh, and I hope that we can, because they've just opened, they've just gone back to Plough Lane, haven't they? In uh Southwest London, and uh, they've not been able to have fans in their new stadium yet. So I hope that we can be one of the first clubs that go down and play a friendly against them. Uh, if not this season, then I, I really hope it happens soon because, yeah, they're a terrific example of fans taking back control. And look how far they've gone. You know, they're, they're in they're 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 in League One. They're at the same level of the club that they rebelled against. And there's loads of examples of that across Europe. I mean, we never created FC United in order to rival Manchester United. We just wanted to create a club, as I say, in the image of what we wanted Manchester United to be, not as not something to necessarily compete with them. There's so many examples across Europe of, um, of, of, fa- of, of fan-owned rebel clubs breaking away from um, their initial one and essentially overtaking the club that they... Uh, that they rebelled against. And there's plenty of examples in England as well. You look at Enfield, you look at Northwich in Europe, there's uh, Hapoel Jerusalem in, and there's Austria, Salz, Austria Salzburg got, got a hell of a long way in Austria. There's loads of examples of that. And yeah, Wimbledon are a terrific example. And uh, yeah, I hope they can go from strength to strength. Fantastic. The, see, I honestly think that the model that you've created is inspiring. I think that um, just... If nothing else, what you've done as a football club should hopefully at least spur on fans to just be more organised and have more to say in their club, if not necessarily break away. That's the extreme, obviously, because it's got to a situation that it's unsustainable to continue to support a model that just doesn't work. Um, because the Glazers, it wasn't necessarily a takeover, it was a dictatorship. 
Um, I think a lot of fans, especially at the moment, will take a lot of a lot of solace from what you've said, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this. I don't know if FC will put it out, but a lot of um, a lot of people listening to this, I think, will really appreciate. I certainly, I can speak for Lee and Pierce. Uh, hopefully, the lads would be up for it. Maybe on an international weekend if you're playing at home, but I'd definitely be up for nipping down um, and going and seeing a game one day and standing in your terrace. And um, I think the mod with the club run. The fact it's fan owned, you can get a beer, you can stand like minded football fans, enjoy a game within a working class environment. I don't know how much your tickets are, but I don't think they're too excessive. Um, how much is a ticket quid. for your match? It's, yeah, 12 quid admission for us. Yeah. It's not, um, I, and honestly, you're any any football, you don't have to be a Manchester United fan, yeah, to, to come down to FC United and enjoy it. You know, you can be you can spot anybody, perhaps not Liverpool City or Leeds. <laughs> but, I just like uh, the concept. The, the concept's yeah. tremendous. See, at the end, what we always do is we just do a wee sort of tidbit type thing, not necessarily a quiz, but a few questions um, just to ask you. And we we're just going to finish on that there now. Um, first question would be What was the last Man United game you went to? It was a home game in the 2004 5 season against West Brom. And. Um, I remember being late to the game. I think we were about half an hour late, me and my mate from uni at the time. And uh, it was 1-1. I remember Robbie Earnshaw scored. I think he, I think it was a penalty. And it was like one of the first penalties awarded to the opposition team at Old Trafford in about eight or nine years or something. <laughs> I can't remember the exact figures, which is quite frightening because I always used to be like, you know, United, United don't get favours from referees. Be quiet. Uh, but but I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, remember, I remember him doing his somersault machine gun celebration anyway. And that was, uh, I think it was April 2005, that was. And that's to say, I, I've, um, when the Glazers took over a month later, I said, I'm not going back till they're gone. And yeah, oh, I can't believe I've managed to stick to that, but I've managed it so far. Fair play to you, mate. Yeah. Principles over profits. Uh, second question would be, what's the best football game you've ever been to? What sticks in your mind, be it? Man United, FC United, or whatever else you support? I would say probably the best one for everything uh, was probably when FC United beat Rochdale in the FA Cup first round. I mean, like, I mean I've mean, i seen some incredible like football on the pitch at, at Old Trafford, whether it be you know when we beat Liverpool 4-0, um, and I think it was Sammy Herpia got sent off after... Couple of minutes, you know, that was fantastic. You know, we I remember the five three against Newcastle. It was it was brilliant. But the the time we beat in twenty late in bonfire night twenty ten, we beat uh, Rochdale in the first round of the cup at their ground, at Scotland, and we must have taken. We had more fans there than Rochdale did. You know, we had about four thousand fans there, and it was just insane. I mean, you might have seen the footage on YouTube. It's some of the um, it's some of the best examples of uh, what. Yeah, and it was it was an absolutely incredible um, experience. And when we went one nil up, like we were just we were just happy. We would have just been happy to score a goal, let alone take the lead. And the place just went absolutely balmy. And Craig Burley was uh, co-commentating because the game um, was shown live on uh, ESPN. Then it's now BT. Um, and I remember he was co-commentating and he, he had to say to John Champion, you know, I'm having to hold onto the monitors here uh, because the ground's shaking so much. I think it's year, it's been years since I've experienced uh, or even witnessed an atmosphere like this. And so it was, it, it was just absolutely insane. And then we got 
a stoppage time winner as well. Because um, we, we went 2-0 up, um, and you can imagine how crazy it went when we went 2-0 up. But then the, Rochdale clawed it back to 2-2. And we were just like, oh, well, that was always going to happen. It'll be great to have a replay if we can get to the end of this. And then their key, there was a bit of a, I think, our striker, Mike Norton, might have kicked it out of the keeper's hands. It'll never be determined, but um, it was allowed. It was given, and he, he knocked it in, and yeah, we won 3-2, and that, that, for me, was the culmination of everything. Just the football in front of us, because they got the, the certainly our first two goals were fantastic. The atmosphere, the occasion, and the fact that we'd got to the second round of the FA Cup less than six years after we'd formed, it was... For me, that was the greatest night. Superb. You said a pitch invasion, did you not? Oh, about three. I think there were about three or four. Yeah. Uh, so like when we took the lead, there was a pitch invasion. When we scored the winner, there was a pitch invasion. Two minutes later, when we came off the pitch, we went straight back on it when the full-time whistle was blown. Oh, it was amazing. Proper was, football. Uh, absolutely, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I hope it can be bettered one day, but... I'll, I'll happily live with it if it can't be. And the last wee question before Pierce wraps up was, you were talking about uh, the fact that you sort of espouse a, a, a political ideology and I know that you've got the same shirt as Pierce there, the Bose uh, top. Is it in a, is it in a yeah. sort of political uh, connotation? Who would be your most iconic figure? Who's someone that you look towards that you maybe read about, that you, you maybe you, you, you sort of sympathise with the most? What, with regards to football or just politics in general? Politics in general. Oh, that's a tough one, to be honest. I mean, um, I always uh, always like that Albert Camus quote about how everything I learned about life, I owe to football. Mm. And um, I, love the, I love the fact that there are plenty of um, philosophers, whether, whether they be political or not, who've uh, spoken about uh, the, um, the power, like the power of football and the power of, um, uh, uh, you know, of what it can do for uh, communities. And Che Guevara's quote about how it's a weapon of the revolution. Even Bill Shankly, you know, I think, you know, how, uh, he is somebody who talks about the social image he believes in is, uh, is what you see uh, in front of him, and that's what he wants to. Uh, and it's difficult to say that as a Man United fan, um, to, to admire a man like Bill Shankly. But, uh, you know, if you, if you take your tribalism away, you can't help mm-hmm. but admire men like that. And I would say, you know, Samat Busby is a great example of somebody who uh, perhaps didn't, wasn't in your face about his political beliefs and like where on the political spectrum he stood. But he was a man who understood um, what football meant to the people who came, who paid in and who funded the club. And he was the one who introduced the attacking philosophy that Manchester United became so renowned and popular for. Because he wanted to entertain the uh, the people who turned up at Old Trafford every week, and even he, back in 1970, I've seen these quotes in the last couple of days about how he doesn't want it. And it's shameful that Manchester United tried to evoke the memory of Samat Busby in order to justify uh, their break, their supposed breakaway to the uh, European Super League. Because he was a man who spoke out even in the early 70s about how business would, how, you know, a, a priority of big business would kill the game of football. Mm-hmm. So I would say as a 
as a socially conscious, left-leaning Manchester United fan, it's got to be Sir Matt Busby, really, because he's the one who understood what the football, what football means to the working class and translated that into what Manchester United have become. Obviously, he was a, a great football man, and uh, I think he's been misquoted on Twitter over the last couple of weeks. Um, the, the, the football with the fans is nothing. It was actually Jack Steen. It's I know, actually on well, the statue to Sally Park. It wasn't just the last few weeks, was it? I remember when they first, when United first put that out in like the summer last year, and it was it's just basically because it's football without fans is nothing. It's Jack Steen's quote, and football without so football is nothing without fans is to Matt Busby's. So you know, it's just a, I know it's just a rejigging of the words, but essentially, you know, Shankly, Busby, and Steen. Yep. Well, they grew up within 10 miles of each other yeah. and they completely changed. Yeah, they completely changed football as we know it. And, Three Kings. Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen that documentary, actually, yeah. Powerful. Uh, yeah, absolutely brilliant. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a fine example of uh, how football is propped up. Crea- it was created and it's been propped up and it's been popularised by, uh, by the working class and that's how it should remain. Definitely. I think it's an absolutely fantastic uh, way to end the show. Um, football without the fans is nothing. George, I think that the work they're doing, we've, we've talked about it before, is, is incredible. Um, and long may the success of SC United of Manchester continue. First of all, thank you very much um, for your time, for coming on and sharing an insight into what um, a fan ownership club is like. And second of all, it'd be great to get you up to, up to Celtic Park one time to take in a game. And hopefully yeah, yeah, love it. Uh, change our allegiances and come over and support a good team. Well, you're, all, you're all welcome down at Broadus Park anytime, lads, seriously. Like, and bring your mates. That, you'll absolutely love it. That's much appreciated. I genuinely actually will take you up on that because uh, mm-hmm. it's something I've fancied doing for a few years. But what Lee was just saying the other now, we actually all met as mates that we are now through Celtic. I met mm-hmm. Pierce one day with his dad and the brazen head. I met Lee because he was coming over to a St. Johnson game with his uncle and his mates for Belfast and we've stayed pals ever since. Um, football is a pretty incredible sport to be able to bring people together and mobilise like-minded people. But um, if you ever fancy coming up to Celtic Park, um, you want to come up and see what the section's like or an away game or something like that, you're honestly more than welcome. Sort you with tickets and all that sort of stuff and um, you're absolutely more than welcome. No problem yeah, at all. I'll, I've, got you, I've, I've got your number and I'll keep that in. Because I, definitely, I definitely the offer's there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, guys. I've really well, an episode. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thanks very much, George. Cheers, guys. Fantastic. Thanks a lot.